Well, as Chris said, uh, my name is Michael Waddell, and I teach uh, philosophy at Augustana College. Um, I'm very pleased to be here. I was involved with the Theology on Tap program uh, at the Archdiocese of Chicago uh, some years ago, and uh, couldn't be more happy uh, to be back here in Sioux Falls participating in the same program. I'm going to stick fairly close to my notes tonight uh, because this is such a sensitive issue uh, and an important one, and I wanted to make sure that I, that I put the clearest possible articulation on my ideas. And uh, those of you who know me, uh, the students here from Augustana College, uh, will certainly back me up when I say that if I start riffing, Lord only knows what's going to come out of my mouth. So I thought I'd better prepare my comments, and I hope you'll bear with me as I, as I sit close to the notes. I thought I'd begin by saying a few words about why a philosophical perspective matters for issues like gay marriage. After all, as Catholics, we live according to the teaching of our faith, and this teaching seems quite clear with respect to the nature of marriage. As citizens of the United States, we live under the laws of the land. So why then do we need philosophical reflection in addition to understanding the church's teachings and the state's laws? Well, for one thing, the state's laws on gay marriage seem to be very much up for discussion, and so we need resources apart from the law in order to help us determine what the law should be. For another thing, while we Catholics aspire to live according to church teaching in our public and private lives, we must still conduct dialogue with others who do not share our faith in this teaching. Imagine, for example, if we were to write to Washington and urge our representatives not to legalize gay marriage simply because it runs counter to Catholic teaching. We probably wouldn't be very effective lobbyists. On the other hand, if we articulate reasons for our beliefs that do not rely on the gift of faith, reasons that are accessible to everyone, not just to Catholics, then we have a better chance of being fruitful contributors to the public dialogue about issues like gay marriage. Developing these kinds of arguments or reasons is one of the things that philosophy can help us to do. What I'd like to share with you tonight, then, is a philosophical, or what we might call a natural law discussion of gay marriage, a discussion that should, in principle, have some force even for non-believers, and therefore that we should be able to use in the public sector. I think it might be helpful to begin this discussion by thinking a little bit about the nature of friendship, since marriage is, after all, a form of friendship. The philosopher Aristotle taught that there are different kinds of friendship, and that we can distinguish one type of friendship from another based on the shared activities or pursuits that form the friendship. So for example, my friendship with Jimmy, with whom I lift weights, is different from my friendship uh, with Jason, uh, who is the mechanic that fixes our family's cars. And both of these friendships are different from the friendship with Jennifer, my wife. Now hopefully, no one is taken back at my suggestion that my friendship with my wife is different from my friendships with Jimmy and Jason. The question is, though, what precisely makes my relationship with my wife different from these other friendships? Is it that I've entered some kind of contractual relationship with Jen, whereas I've not formed any contracts with my weightlifting partner? If so, how then does my marriage differ from my relationship with the mechanic? Or is it merely that I have a, a greater love for my wife than I do for my other friends? And if so, then how does my marriage differ from my, my relationship with my daughters, whom I love just as much as I love my wife? Mustn't there be some qualitative difference that distinguishes marriage from all other types of friendship? 
One might reasonably deduce that part of what distinguishes my relationship with my wife from my other relationships is the sexual activity that my wife and I share. The students are cringing now whenever I talk about that. Sorry, guys. If, as Aristotle suggested, different types of friendship arise from different shared activities, then the relationship between a man and a woman that is formed in sexual union is different in kind from other types of relationship, precisely because this relationship alone is built on the sexual act, an act that is at once procreative and unitive. Traditionally, the name marriage has been reserved for this type of, of relationship, especially when the relationship is formally recognized by some sort of public or religious right. Because relationships that are not built upon the sharing of sexual union differ in kind from relationships that are, these relationships do not receive the name of marriage, or at least they have not traditionally received it. Of course, just what counts as a sexual, sexual union is a matter of some debate nowadays, and therefore, so is the definition of marriage. For example, some people have suggested that the unitive aspect of marriage is equally or perhaps even more important than the procreative aspect. And since homosexual couples can love one another in a way that creates unity, they should be able to, to marry. How might one answer this suggestion in light of the description of marriage I've given? Well, clearly there can be some kind of unity that results from any shared pursuit, whether it be exercising together, singing together in a choir, or even maintaining a household together as roommates. But the kinds of unity that result from these relationships differ from one another no less than the kinds of actions or pursuits upon which the friendships are based differ from one another. Thus, the kind of unity that teammates have is different from the kind of unity that roommates have. And both of these are different from the kind of unity that husband and wife have. What distinguishes the unity of marriage from other types of unity is precisely the fact that marriage entails a sharing of sexual acts that other forms of friendship do not. So the unity of marriage is, at least in part, a sexual unity. And thus the unitive aspect of marriage is an inextricably joined to its sexual aspect. But someone might object here and say, yes, but homosexual couples can have relationships that are unitive in a sexual way. So why can't they be allowed to marry? Now, I do not doubt that homosexual relationships can form a kind of unity any more than I doubt that unity arises from other types of relationships. But I do believe that homosexual intercourse and the sexual union of marriage are not the same thing. And the primary difference is that sex between a man and a woman has a procreative or reproductive capacity that homosexual intercourse does not. Thus, the distinctive unity of marriage derives not only from sharing intercourse, but from the procreative aspect of sexual union. And in this way, marriage differs from the unity that might arise from homosexual intercourse. At this point in the conversation, someone might note that there are, in fact, married couples who use contraception thereby rejecting the procreative aspect of the sexual union. And there are also many infertile couples who have good marriages without being able to have children. What would we make of this, given the description of marriage that I've been, I've been suggesting? Well, with respect to the use of contraception, I think one might simply say that it works against the very nature of the, of the act that comprises the distinctiveness of marriage. 
If you take away the distinctiveness of this act, then marriage ceases to be different from many other forms of friendship, particularly ones that involve some sort of close physical proximity. And this is a consequence that most of us would not be eager to accept. Even so, rejecting the natural procreative capacity of sex through contraception is different from engaging in an act that never had this natural capacity in the first place. Thus, there is a qualitative difference between homosexual unions and contraceptive heterosexual unions. With respect to the situation of infertile couples, I think one could say that infer infertility is an unfortunate diminishing of the natural capacity of man and woman to bear children. And it's precisely because there is a diminishing of this natural capacity and thereby the desired fruitfulness of marriage that infertility is experienced by many couples as a burden that is suffered, not as a desirable state. But no such natural capacity for procreation exists between man and man or woman and woman. And thus there is also a qualitative difference between homosexual couples and infertile heterosexual couples. Now, here's where the issue of gay marriage can get very Clintonian. What if someone were to say, Yes, I acknowledge that the relationship, the sort of relationship a man and woman have in marriage is different in kind from the sort of relationship homosexual couples can have. And I'll even agree that the traditional or natural law definition of marriage might pertain only to male-female relationships. But why couldn't the government decide to give legal protection to any couple who wishes to enter into a contractual agreement, sharing their property and providing special privileges to one another? in the eyes of the law. We could even call this agreement something other than marriage, if you'd like. Say, a civil union. Okay. What would be wrong with this? Well, here I think that there are a couple of ways one might respond. First, you could simply feel satisfied for having persuaded your interlocutor that there's a fundamental difference between homosexual relationships and marriage. This is, after all, no small feat these days. If you want to go further, though, you might try to forge a link between the legal covenant of marriage and the traditional or natural law understanding of marriage as a procreative union of man and woman. I suspect one could argue, for example, that the reason the government created legal protections for marriage in the first place is that there is a natural priority of this kind of relationship in the very constitution of the human being, a priority that, de that derives, by the way, not only from the need for man and woman to procreate in order to preserve the species, but also from the natural complementarity of man and woman and from the role of the family as the natural basis of all human society. If this is correct, it's not necessarily the case that other types of union should be afforded the same privileges as marriage because these other types of union do not hold the same place in the order of human relationships. Of course, that doesn't mean that those privileges could not be given to other types of relationships. It only means that it's not necessarily unfair for them not to be so given. Now, if you wanted to go even further still, you might question whether this kind of legal partnership, which I take to be not fundamentally different from what, say, business partners might undertake, you might question whether this kind of legal arrangement is really what proponents of civil unions are asking for. To be sure, there are some people who talk this way, as though what is at stake were merely a matter of exercising civil rights to form contracts, contracts for the sake of sharing insurance benefits, inheritance privileges, or what have you. 
But it also seems possible to me that some proponents of civil unions might not really be asking only for the right to enter into a simple contractual agreement. They might be asking for the legal recognition of gay relationships as acceptable. To put an even finer point on it, they might be asking for a kind of moral judgment that the homosexual intercourse upon which these relationships are built is acceptable. From a natural law perspective, as well as from a Catholic one, this is more problematic than simply allowing the formation of a legal partnership between two individuals of the same sex. For the same natural law reasoning that understands the sexual union of marriage as being ordered toward procreation, also suggests that sexual acts not ordered, or at least not open to procreation, contradict the very nature of the sexual union, which is, to, which is to say that these acts are morally problematic. Thus, if what proponents of civil union really want, even if it's not what their pu public rhetoric suggests, is for society to approve of homosexual intercourse, then there might well be reason to object against the notion of civil union even on natural law grounds. Okay. And here I'm going to turn it over to Travis, I believe, who's going to take the, uh, the legal issues uh, into consideration for us. Maybe I could just drink your water. I think it's fair to say, can everybody hear me back there? That uh, gay and lesbian advocacy is alive and well, and it's something that we have to deal with every single day. Um, it's everywhere you look. Media critic Michael Medved once said, in a similar point, a Martian gathering evidence about American society, simply by monitoring our television, would certainly assume there are more gay people in America than there are evangelical Christians. So the lobbying machine is well-funded and supported by all aspects of our society. The support comes from the popular culture, whether it's TV, radio, internet, movies. It comes from the education establishment, the university, the colleges, public schools, uh, elementary schools, high schools. And this isn't just um, non-Catholic schools, it's Catholic schools at the same time. It comes in journalism, both newspaper and periodicals. It comes in literature. It shows itself in religion. Okay, I think it's fair to say that some of the issues that our Protestant brothers and sisters have to deal with every time they get together and meet on a national level is gay rights. Are we going to ordain gay bishops? Are we going to allow gay marriages? Are we going to allow our pastors or to be gay? But I think um, it's also in the political realm. Okay, one of the hottest issues this year and in the election year 2004 is gay marriages. But the, the way I'm going to talk about it today is the legal arena. Okay, how does this find itself in the legal arena? Which I think if you ask a lot of the gay advocates, they feel that this is probably the most important and crucial component to uh, professing their, their agenda. No doubt law dictates policy, and no doubt law changes hearts and minds. Okay? You might think that, you might not think that at first, but I give you an example. Roe v. Wade, the past three decades, how has that Supreme Court decision affected our hearts and minds? How do we look at abortion? I think it's pretty telling uh, when, we, we, when we state that law has that effect upon us as citizens. There's not enough time tonight to give you a broad understanding of what's taking place across the country uh, in the legal arena, but I want to give you a, uh, just a couple of examples, okay? What really started it all was in 1983 when the Hawaii Supreme Court and Bauer versus Lurin 
It's a decision in which the plurality of the justices, and this is important, even though those justices rejected the idea of a fundamental right to same-sex marriage, they still held that under the Equal Protection Clause of the Hawaii State Constitution, marriage law was sex discrimination and therefore subject to scrutiny. And if you're in constitutional law, strict scrutiny is the highest burden that you have to meet. Okay? So the court in Hawaii said the marriage law in the state of Hawaii was sexual discrimination. Therefore, the legislator had to do something about it. Well, again, that had a trickle-down effect across the country. One of those effects was the Defense of Marriage Act. You might recall back in um, 1996, the federal government passed in the House, it passed in the Senate. President Clinton signed DOMA, Defense of Marriage Act, into law. And what this did is it did a couple of things. It defined at the federal level, for federal purposes, that marriage was between one man and one woman. And it also had a full faith and, uh, full faith and credit clause provision that says that one state, South Dakota, does not have to recognize another state, such as Vermont's, recognition of gay marriage. So it had two important provisions. Today, you're hearing talk about a federal marriage amendment at, uh, to the United States Constitution. Okay? Um, that's receiving a lot of comments on the national scale. Uh, June 10th, 2003, the Canadian Supreme Court, and again, these are three justices, three judges declared that the exclusivity of marriage between one man and one woman is unconstitutional. So now you have an un unelected and unaccountable judiciary who has now made this the law of the land for our northern neighbors, which now joined the Netherlands and Belgium as the only three such nations in the world recognizing gay marriage. How about the recent court decision on June 26, 2003 with our Supreme Court, Lawrence versus Texas? Who has heard of that decision? Show of hands, okay. Uh, that was the decision in which the United States Supreme Court stated that a law in Texas which outlawed sodomy was unconstitutional. And it further ruled that anal sex is a protected right. And what's important about this is most of the justices were on the court 17 years ago in which they ruled in Bowers v. Hardwick that there was no constitutional right to um, sodomy. Courts across the country are already using Lawrence v. Texas as precedent. There's legal defense teams in Nevada and Utah who are saying their, con their clients are consensual adults who have decided to enter into polygamous relationships. And because of that Supreme Court precedent, Lawrence v. Texas, the state has no right, no basis upon which they can deny the recognition of those polygamous marriages. How about in Massachusetts? November of 2003, the Supreme, the Supreme Court of Massachusetts in a four to three decision called Goodrich versus Department of Health ruled that same-sex couples cannot be excluded from marriage under Massachusetts law and redefined marriage as a momentous act of self-determination, okay? A momentous act of self-determination. Whatever that is, it's not a union between one man and one female in a covenantal marriage. In fact, it went a step further. It had ordered, it ordered the Massachusetts State's legislature to do something about it by May 17th of this year, okay? So next week, maybe you've read about this in the paper, it was in today's Argus Leader, they're gonna have gay marriages because the Supreme Court of Massachusetts said you need to have this. Of course, this has created a vast range of problems and a firestorm across Massachusetts and across the country. You might have heard of San Francisco or a mayor in New York 
who is issuing gay licenses and, and issuing gay marriages without any statutory approval, without any statutory guidance. So what's the, what's, so my point is, it's gay advocacy, gay marriage is, is seeing itself in all different legal arenas and, and, it's, and it's having a joint effect of promoting gay marriages in ways which we may not agree with, which we don't agree with. So what's the status of marriage in South Dakota today? Um, marriage is a personal relation, and I'm quoting South Dakota law now, between a man and a woman arising out of a civil contract in which the consent of the parties capable of making it is necessary. Okay, back in 1996, um, the words between a man and a woman were inserted into this marriage uh, law out of, out of the, the results of what was occurring on the national level, out of what was happening in Hawaii. So South Dakota law is pretty clear. You need one man, one woman to have marriage. But why do same-sex couples want to change the legal definition of marriage in South Dakota and elsewhere throughout North America? Why is it? Why do they want to change this? I submit there are two reasons. I think one is first cultural acceptability. Professor Ed Waddell had talked about it. Um, I think the real goal of the gay, lesbian, and transge transgender movement is acceptability as a healthy and beneficial way of conducting their lives. And when you get acceptability, what does this lead to? It leads to legitimacy, okay? And the result is then that gay rights legislation in all its various forms, not just gay marriage, but benefits and, and all the other forms uh, that we would recognize gay rights, um, it finds its way in those, in those various manners. And once the gay right movement can enlist the government, whether it's the state or the federal or the local government, whether it's judiciary, once they have this monopoly of force, they can enact what laws and what policies they think are right. This susceptibility begins the process of evaluating gay, lesbian, and transgender lifestyle to the status of protected activity, okay? And that's important because while at, at the same time branding mainstream religious institutions and individuals as narrow-minded and saying they are acting in a discriminatory manner, symbolically, this gay rights legislation declares that, at essence, homosexual behavior is good and just, okay? And those who oppose homosexual behavior must be motivated by some other um, means, whether it's discrimination or bigotry. I think the argument can safely be said in this way. Um, being a homosexual in our culture is much like being a minority, okay? Whether you're a racial or ethnic minority. Racial and ethnic minorities were and still are discriminated against in need of protection by anti-discrimination laws. And, and their argument is because they, in their minority form, are discriminated against, we are discriminated against likewise. I think once you start going down this road, once you start putting in the language of discrimination, it heightens a lot of the rhetoric, a lot of the talk, because nobody wants to be accused of discrimination, do they? Um, in our society today and in our culture, that word has a negative consequence. I think the second reason they want to change the definition of gay marriage in South Dakota is rights, more rights, and more rights, okay? And with marriage always comes benefits, and that's acknowledged. And benefits are something which are good, something that we want married couples to have, something that we want to encourage in our society, which is why the government and society offers those benefits. <clears throat> 
But when legislation and public policy codifying the values of the gay and lesbian lifestyle are enacted in the form of laws prohibiting discrimination on the basis of sexual orientation or practice, that's when the dispute comes a legal one. At the heart of the dispute is a rallying cry, again, not to be discriminated against and to have our civil rights enforced. You hear that language all the time, don't you? It's our rights, our civil rights are being infringed upon. We're being discriminated against. And in our society, that's very powerful because we are a rights-based society. We have rights everywhere you look. People are always advocating for our rights. So what are some of those rights? Again, they're saying marriage is a right. But what, at essence, is a right? A right is a privilege. It's a demand. It's a just claim. Again, with every right comes a corresponding benefit. Marriage, no doubt, is a right that bestows, bestows important benefits for the husband and wife. So what are the benefits that homosexuals are denied because they are not being able to marry? Okay, Remember that Defense of Marriage Act I was explaining? Well, back in 1997, the General Accounting Office to the House of Representatives Judiciary Committee conducted a study and identified approximately 1,050 federal laws in which marriage is a factor. Okay? They said in which marriage is a factor. They didn't necessarily say this was a benefit or a burden. They said it was a factor. All right? But what gay advocates are quick to point out is this study and the many laws that they argue are associated with marriage. We're talking over a thousand different laws which have an effect upon married couples. That's pretty powerful. That's pretty powerful lobbying on their part. Gay advocates are quick to point this out. So what I want to do is I'm going to briefly go through some of these benefits and at the same time point out how gay and lesbians can structure legally their lives to receive many of these benefits with the same time without breaking down the traditional definition of marriage as we know it. But first, we're going to have to acknowledge that there are also state and federal laws that are considered burdens, or what I like to call responsibilities. Things when you become married, you have these responsibilities as a couple. And these naturally follow the institution of marriage. For example, when you, become, when you marry somebody, you have a duty to support that spouse. Okay? You have a duty to provide for their health, their care, their um, shelter, their food. And that's re that duty is reciprocal. How about the whole realm of divorce law, including spousal maintenance and cu custody provisions? That, again, is a burden or a, re or a responsibility you, in you, in you incur when you become married. Joint and several liability for the necessities of the family. These and other policies are what um, oftentimes the responsibility of marriage. How about the IRS tax laws? Dual income married couples are often adversely affected by their income versus single people. This is well known as the marriage penalty. So we must acknowledge that a particular law or policy may create advantages or disadvantages for those who are married, or may apply to both married and single people. Let's look at some of those benefits that gays and lesbians say they're being denied. The first objection, which you commonly hear, is the right to make medical decisions on my behalf, my partner's right to make medical decisions on my behalf, if I am incapacitated, okay? That's a common objection, but there's a common solution. Does anybody know what that solution could be? Okay. Very good. It's called a Durable Power of Attorney for Health Care. It's a simple document that's provided under South Dakota codified law. Now, granted, if you don't have one of these legal documents, a Durable Power of Attorney, there is an established pecking order. 
South Dakota law says the first person who has a right to make medical decisions on your behalf if you're incapacitated is your spouse. Then it goes to an adult child, a parent, an adult sibling, so on down the line. But if you craft this document and everybody has a right to this document, you can decide who is to make medical decisions on your behalf. So if you're gay, if you're lesbian, and you want your partner to make med those medical decisions, you draft and execute a durable power of attorney. And this person has the power to speak for you just as a spouse would. Often you hear the complaint that the person cannot visit another in a hospital unless they're a family member. The durable power of attorney solves this concern. A second objection is the right to handle my financial affairs in case I am incapacitated or unable to do so. Okay, another common objection, another very common solution. It's called a durable power of attorney for financial matters. Again, South Dakota agency law provides this uh, for those in our state. If you want somebody to act on your behalf on some financial matters, you draft and execute a document. Okay, it's not necessarily prohibitive. It might cost a few hundred dollars, but you, uh, you, you talk to an attorney, they draft one for you, and once that's drafted, executed, that person has the right to act financially on your behalf. How about this objection? The right to pass my property at my death to who I want to have it, okay? Let's say I'm, I, I'm a gay man, I'm 40 years old, and I have adult uh, children. If I die without a will, intestacy laws in South Dakota state, they go to my, my children, my adult children, or my minor children. So what's the, what's the response to that? What's the, what's, the, what's the common solution? You draft a what? A will, right. I mean, these are things which apply to both married couples, single couples, and gay couples, okay? You draft a will to prevent the disinheritance of a partner. You dictate exactly who you want your property to go to and how you want that property to go. You can also verify how your debts will be paid. You can appoint this person as your personal representative, and he or she will handle the probate of your estate, and they also can make your funeral arrangements. How about this objection? I want a right to own property with my life partner. Okay, is there a legal answer to that? How many own a house in here? Okay, how did you sign the document with your husband? Right, but, but you signed it as a joint tenancy with a right of survivorship. Okay, and what that means is you own the property together, jointly, equally. So if your husband dies, you receive the remaining half. Gay and lesbian partners can have the very same rights that married couples have. And in fact, in South Dakota, uh, when you're married and you accumulate property, it, let's say you take title to a car in your own name, that's your property, okay, as a husband or as a wife, separate from your spouse. So there's ways that you can accumulate property, whether it's joint tenancy or tenancy in common, in which you can, you can own property with someone who is not your wife, not your partner. In fact, he can be your best friend, as Professor Waddell was talking about. If he wants to own a car with his mechanic, he can own it in joint title. Okay? So these are all objections which we hear, but there are solutions for it. The other objection is, is at separation. Let's say you're a gay couple and you decide to separate, okay? The, the analogy to that is divorce uh, if you're married. Um, Same-sex couples do not have the protections of spousal maintenance or the division of property under South Dakota law, but there's a way to accomplish that. 
they can privately contract to accomplish the same goals. How about the right to receive spousal benefits by way of health or other insurance benefits? Yes, it's true, but many private and state businesses, many corporations across the country are granting same-sex couples these benefits. Furthermore, if both spouses are employed, it's not always advantageous to enroll as a beneficiary under the plan sponsored by your spouse employer. This is the one you hear all the time, okay? I, and again, I'm using the analogy, I'm speaking as if I'm a, a gay couple and I, and, I, and I have a gay partner. I, I do not have the right to be considered a parent. You know, I do not have the right to adopt. I do not have a set of child custody and visitation guidelines that flow from my designation of being a parent. Okay, that's a common objection. Um, but something you need to understand is while these rights are characterized in the form of marital benefits, these rights under law are properly premised upon biological linkage, okay, rather than the marital status. And that's an important distinction. So as a father, as, as me as a father, I have these rights as a father and, and to have association with my children, whether I'm married or not, okay? If I have a child out of wedlock, I have the same rights because I'm the biological parent under, under South Dakota law, um, and regardless of whether I'm married. A step-parent, unless the child is adopted, is not considered a parent after a divorce from the biological parent, okay? The presumption of parentage upon, based upon marriage is limited to husbands only, all right? For example, the offspring of a husband born to another woman other than his wife is not presumed to be the child of the wife. Okay, does that make sense? All right. A child cannot be the biological offspring of both same-sex partners, and courts across the country have been very reluctant to decree that Heather has two mommies or Johnny has two daddies. Okay. More importantly, the fundamental question is whether we want to proceed in this area involving children. Children and their relationship with a parent who lives with the same-sex partners are really at the heart of the gay rights marriage controversy, okay? So, gay and lesbian activists seek to connect with American fundamental sense of fairness and equality, okay? Yet a careful review of the benefits they seek reveals that there is little unfairness in a system that allows for private economic sharing and requires a presumptive biological relationship for ongoing responsibility and contact with children. Same-sex couples may be dissatisfied with the present definition of traditional marriage as the primary cell of society. Who said that? Who says that marriage is the primary cell of society? The Holy Father, okay? And the denial of their unions, but there is little reason to assert that they are denied rights. Gay and lesbian couples enjoy what many heterosexual, and this is important, they enjoy what many heterosexual unmarried couples who are cohabitating enjoy, the freedom to order their relationship through private agreements. Um, what I want to do is, in the, the two minutes that Travis left me, is um, <laughs> uh, basically what, what the whole gay marriage controversy has done from the Catholic perspective is brought into question, into focus, what is marriage? And, and what I'm going to do is just go through what marriage is 
from the Catholic theological perspective. And I'm going to touch briefly on things that, that aren't necessarily central to the question of gay marriage, but they're important to the whole question of marriage anyway, and they need to be understood if we're going to understand what marriage is from the Catholic perspective. So first, I'm just going to give a definition, and then I'll go through and elaborate on each element of the definition. Marriage is the intimate, exclusive, indissoluble communion of life and love entered by man and woman at the design of the creator for the purposes of their own good and the procreation and education of children. Okay. Marriage is an intimate communion of life and love. And as uh, Professor Waddell said, marriage is a friendship. It's, the, in fact, the closest form of friendship that two people can have. Um, it's the most intimate form of human friendship. It involves sharing the whole of one's person, the entirety of who and what I am as a human being with another person and vice versa. So when a man and woman marry, they, they share themselves with another completely, fully, entirely. Okay? It's a mutual self-surrender that is so intimate and so complete that the two people become one. If uh, one of the things that I always struggled with, for, or for a while I struggled with, is how, how can the church be called the body of Christ and the bride of Christ? Well, it's precisely because when two people get married, they become one. So Christ, his bride, the church, are so in union with each other that the church can be called his body as well as his bride. And that is uh, right mirrored, uh, reflected, you could say, in the marriage between a man and a woman. Secondly, marriage is exclusive. Um, it's a mutual gift between two people, and therefore can only between, be between two people. I can, because of who and what I am as a human being, I can only give myself completely and fully in the totality and entirety of my being to one, another, one other person, and vice versa. Thirdly, marriage is indissoluble. And this is something that's, of course, challenged um, by our society, uh, but, but that is part of the Catholic understanding. Marriage is established by God as an unbreakable bond when the spouses give their consent to one another. And therefore, divorce isn't so much wrong as it is impossible. You cannot, if you really marry another person, you cannot end that marriage because when you give your consent to one another, God cements that bond forever until one of you die. It's not something that I can break of my own free will. God has cemented it by our mutual consent. And then the crucial uh, aspect of marriage from, for, for this discussion, marriage is entered into by a man and by a woman. The complementarity of the sexes, what, what makes a man a man and a woman a woman and how they complement one another is essential to marriage. It's essential to marriage. Without that complementarity, you do not have a marriage from the Catholic perspective. The very nature of marriage, the essence of marriage, what marriage is, requires opposite sexes, a man and a woman. Okay? So, so, so the, these things that people want to call same-sex marriages simply are not marriages. The, those unions cannot be called marriages. Um, I can't call a dog, a cat, and make it a cat in so doing. It's a dog. It's what it is. A marriage is a union between a man and a woman. And if two men come together and they stand before a judge and they hold up the certificate that says marriage certificate, that does not make it a marriage. What it is ontologically, essentially, naturally, is a union between a man and a woman. 
And it's at the design of the creator. And from the Catholic perspective, this is also fundamental. Marriage is not a human contract. It's not a human construct. We, can't just make, we don't just make up marriage for our own purposes. God is the author of marriage, not the human being. He made the call to marriage part of our, the structure of who and what we are as man and as woman. It's governed by his laws, which he gave to the church, his bride. Okay? And therefore, we cannot, as human beings, we cannot change the meaning and the purpose of marriage. Marriage exists, then, for the, what are the two purposes of marriage? Marriage exists, first of all, for, for the good of the couples. And Professor Waddell touched on these, this as well. Marriage is for the benefit, for the enrichment, and ultimately the salvation of the spouses. My wife is my path to heaven, and vice versa. She is the means by which I am, God calls me, to be forever, with him forever in heaven, and vice versa. Okay? This is one of the, the primary aspects of marriages, marriage. Secondly, and crucial to this question, and again, Professor Waddell touched on this, marriage exists for the procreation and education of children. This is a primary dimension of marriage. Children are not simply an add-on, an addition to marriage. They flow from the very structure of what marriage is. They flow from the heart of the spouse's mutual self-giving, from their self-donation. They're the fruit and the fulfillment of what marriage is, of that mutual self-gift. And this makes sense if you think about what nature, or sorry, what love is from a theological, theological Christian Catholic perspective. What is the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity? The Holy Spirit is the love between the Father and the Son. Okay, in the Trinity you have the Father who pours himself out, that is the Son, and the mutual love that flows from Father to Son is the person of the Holy Spirit. Love by its very nature is fruitful. It's ordered towards procreation. We see that in the Trinity, and we see that reality reflected in who and what we are as human beings. When two people, a man and a woman, love each other, the natural result of that love is another person, just as it is in the Trinity. Okay? We are created in God's image, and in our ability to procreate, we mirror the reality of love as it exists in God. So when we look at gay marriages, um, the, the fact that, first of all, the fact that there's no complementarity between uh, two people of the same sex prevents them from being married. They can call it marriage if they want, but that's not what it really is, as does the essential in inability of homosexual acts to procreate. And here I'm going to touch again on some things that Professor Waddell says, or said. The reason that a sterile couple or even a... Contracepting couple can be considered married is because the act that they are engaging in is still ordered towards procreation, even though they have, by some external factor to the act itself, closed it off from procreation, or it has been closed off from procreation by some external act. But the homosexual act, by its very nature, can never result in procreation of its essence, per se. That is not the case with a contracepting or even a sterile couple. The act is still open to procreation, but it's been prevented but for, for other reasons. All right? God created man and woman for each other. Man for woman, woman for man. 
And it's impossible for a man to give himself to another man and for a woman to give herself to another woman in the, in the same way as a man does to a woman and vice versa. And again, that's something that's essential to what marriage is. And what I would highly recommend in this whole discussion for understanding the theological dimension of, uh, of what marriage is, what it means to be a human person from the theological perspective, um, what, what marriage is, what sexuality is all about, is reading, um, well, or trying to read, um, <laughs> The Theology of the Body by John Paul II. It's a series of Wednesday audiences that he gave over the course of five years at the very beginning of his pontificate. Now, if this is a little bit daunting, and it is, you can always begin with the writings of Christopher West. Christopher West is very well known for having popularized the theology of the body. He's got an excellent book in a question and answer format called Good News About Sex and Marriage. Answers to Your Honest Questions About Catholic Teaching. This is an excellent book, as well as his book, Theology of the Body Explained, in which he goes through the Holy Father's text and sort of explains it to those of us who aren't as well-versed in philosophy and theology as the Holy Father is. So I would highly recommend that if you're interested, especially in the theological dimension, that you look at uh, either the Holy Father himself or Christopher West's explanation of him. And the final thing I want to comment or point out is that the whole idea of gay marriage could never have arisen if the, the connection between sex and procreation hadn't been divorced by contraception 40 years ago, and even longer, if you, you push it back to 1930, actually. But it's that divorce, that separation between what sex is for, procreation, that pulling apart of what it's about that has opened the door to what we have today with this push for gay marriages. Okay, I'm going to leave it at that now, and I'm going to invite questions. And what I'll do is I'll let whichever three of us wants to take a crack at it. You can ask a question specifically to one of us if you like, um, or you can just throw a general one out there, and we'll each give it a try. And also, uh, we're going to have a micro... This is being taped. I forgot to mention this. We're taping Theology on Tap now to make it available uh, from, our, from our diocesan AV library, and it's available, the audio is available on the website. Last month's Theology on Tap, which was on the Passion of the Christ, is available now on the website. If you go to www.sfcatholic.org, you'll see a little um, a link to the audio of last month's presentation. So if you could just wait for the microphone to get to you, just raise your hand or stand up if you have a question, and wait for the mic to get to you, and then proceed with your question. So, questions? On the legal end, um, is there penalties for using the Bible even to talk against contraception. Like I heard that there was in Canada, like $5,000 fine or something like that was given to somebody. Is this true? Well, um, that's a good question. I, in the United States, I mean, you have the freedom of speech in the United States Constitution. You can say whatever you want, whenever you want, to whoever you want, uh, which is... Um, which is good, but at the same time, it comes with some negatives. But I, th I think what you're maybe referring to, and, and I've, I've read some, some literature, some emails, on there's a hate crimes statute in, in, in Canada. And I think some courts or maybe some people are bringing litigation underneath that hate crimes statute in Canada, which is broad-based, 
to say that in essence, maybe even the Bible itself is a document, a hate crime document. But whether that's ever been successful, I don't know. I, I, I don't know the answer to that. And just, just a side note, I was always bad in oral arguments in law school because I could never keep within the time. This is probably more for Chris, but um, how does, how is the church supposed to handle people that are professed gay and that, and they're fine with this? How, how is that supposed to be handled if they want to come to mass and participate fully in the mass and what is the church's response to be? So you're talking about somebody who um, not only has that homosexual, or yes, same-sex attraction, but is acting out on it and uh, sees it something good and is not try is not struggling against it or, or that sort of thing. Correct. Right. Okay. Yeah. Uh, I would say the same way that the church responds to the cohabitating couple that comes to mass and wants to receive all of the sacraments. In other words, um, from the church's perspective, objectively because we don't know the heart, but objectively, they're living in a state of, of grave sin. And, and therefore, every person is called, before they receive the Eucharist, to reflect on the state of their soul at that point, and if they realize they're in a state of grave sin, they cannot receive. Um, does that address your question? Okay. Any other questions? Uh, Considering gay marriage, abortion, euthanasia, and the role of the judiciary, can you say, uh, my question is, do we still live in a democracy? I'll let Travis answer, but I'd say no. That's, <laughs> That's the question, and I think Roe v. Wade is the, is the decision that opened that door. When, when we talk about the privacy under the Constitution, which was not there, um, what you have then is, is five people, a majority, on the Supreme Court making decisions for the whole country. And in that example I gave from the uh, Supreme Court in Canada, there you had three judges who said wiped out all the laws of all the provinces in Canada. Roe v. Wade wiped out all the laws of the states in which we were dealing with at the time on abortion. And, and basically it's, it's judge-made law. And there's a lot of articles out there on that particular topic. Um, it's called the judicial usurpa <laughs> usurpation of, of politics, of laws. It's, 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 and that's not what the, the founding governors had, our founding fathers had in mind at all. I mean, if you read the Federalist Papers, in fact, the one area of government, whether it's the, um, the judiciary, was the one they feared the most. And they thought they had the protections in place with the executive and the legislative. They thought they had the, the protections in place against the judiciary, but we see now that it's gone that other way. Um, I, and I just want to follow up on that. I've seen um, a couple of, of law review articles uh, recently that um, are arguing that what we have now where only the Supreme Court is deemed to have the authority to interpret the Constitution is never the original intent of the founders. It is actually only a development in the last 50 years. The, even the, the idea of judicial review still allowed for the possibility of the legislature and the executive branch of the government to interpret the Constitution and therefore 
if the Supreme Court renders a judgment that the other, other branches find uh, is in violation of the Constitution, those branches could say, this is wrong and we're rejecting it. Today, we have this idea that the Supreme Court has the last and final say on the Constitution, but that is actually a relatively new um, interpretation and understanding of our form of government. So. I have two questions. Uh, the first one is, do you have any information on percentages? It just seems like what you were saying about the Martian looking at our society, and it, it seems like there's such a great number of homosexuals, you know, the activists and things, and that it's such, such a huge part of our society, but what are the actual numbers? Um, and also, what are we to do about it? <laughs> Sitting here. Uh, as far as numbers, I, I, the... The newer studies, the last 10 years, studies of, of uh, our culture, usually no more than 2% of American citizens have same-sex attraction or identify themselves as gay or lesbian. Um, Christopher West, I think in this book, says that if you look at the, that, the numbers and plus family members and friends, um, same-sex attraction affects 16 million Americans, directly or indirectly, whether, so whether somebody who has it or a friend or family member of that person. So 16 million Americans out of nearly 300 Americans is, is a relatively low percentage, so it's not a high number, really. Uh, in terms of what can we do about, what specifically are you asking? Um, just the changes in the laws. I mean, uh, you know, you write to your senators, you do what you can. Prayer, obviously. Yeah, I mean... That's the most basic, most grassroots effort that you can accomplish is, is, is voting for people who are going to defend traditional marriage. Uh, we have a primary coming up right now, um, and it's hardly been a, an issue that's been talked about whatsoever at their state level. I mean, you don't hear Herseth and Diedrich talking about where they stand on gay marriages, gay adoption, uh, spousal benefits for gay partners. It's, it's just not being discussed. But um, to answer your second question, I think the the answer I, my wife and I usually give, you know, when when we talk to people about contraception or abortion, um, the answer we give is is be bold, be faithful, and be Catholic. And what that means is know the teachings of the church, and and be brave enough to talk about it when the issues come up, in in the in the environments in which it's hard to do that, whether it's at work, or whether it's at a family gathering. Um, you know, it, it takes strength and it takes courage to speak the truth, but uh, that's what we need to do. Okay. Um, I am not pro-homosexual, but I am totally anti-gay. But I'm not afraid of them. So why do they call me a homophobic? Can somebody give me the definition of that? Oh. <laughs> yeah, you yeah, I knew I should have fielded one of the easier ones. Uh, well, you know, the, the, the etymology of homophobia, uh, uh, the root is, is, is phobos, is fear. Uh, and so most people, when they hear that, they assume that what it really, what it really, uh, denotes is, is a fear of homosexuals. And I suspect that for some people, there is actually an underlying fear of, of homosexuals. But of course, the term gets bandied about uh, in ways which are quite rhetorically loaded. Uh, uh, it's, it's used as a slur against people who have, uh, in some cases, quite legitimate moral concerns about homosexuality. And so 
if someone were to call me homophobic, I think that my response would simply be to know that I'm not, right? That, that my concerns about homosexuality are principled moral concerns, and as a Catholic, they're, they're concerns of faith as well. Um, you know, if they want to use that name as a way of, of labeling me and of trying to, to diminish my concerns as though they were, uh, you know, some psychological pathology uh, rather than, than, than real well-considered well uh, 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 criticisms, then, then that's certainly their prerogative. Uh, for what it's worth, I, I wouldn't get too personally invested in it because this is, this is a discussion which is difficult enough to continue to, to carry on in, in a civil and charitable way. Uh, and that sort of rhetoric is no more helpful than certain forms of rhetoric that are used by people who have who have moral reservations about homosexuality to talk about excuse me to talk about those folks as well. So I think anything we can do to keep the the conversation civil, uh, which by the way is not to say that we should we should give ground on our principles, but anything we can do to keep the conversation civil and, and charitable is probably helpful. I just want to add, um, and I think. You bring up a good point, rhetoric. I mean, words and phrases are used, uh, and words are powerful. And, and I talked about discrimination. Okay, who in here wants to be accused of, of discriminating against someone else? Nobody, because discrimination has such an, somebody raised their hand over there. There's a brave soul. Uh, discrimination has such a negative connotation in our society, okay? But I wanted to bring this book, okay? It's, it's called, Where is Baby Donald's Kitten? All right, and I was reading this to my 20-month-year-old or 20-month-old uh, Wednesday night. And if you look real closely, it says a book about visual discrimination. That's the subtitle, a book about visual discrimination. And I remember thinking, what a funny subtitle for Disney. All right, um, you know they're they're talking about discrimination, but the whole concept of the book is to point out the kitty, all right, and to discriminate what's not the kitty. All right. As we proceed through here, that's not a kitty. That's a dog. It's a toy dog, etc. Um, but again, going back to what is the appropriate definition of discrimination? Discrimination. Webster's defines it as differentiation. It's to distinguish. Okay. It doesn't have that negative connotation when used properly. But it's again the use of language. You know, pro uh, homophobic or anti-gay or discriminatory. I mean, that's again. We have to be bold and faithful. We have to point out those um, characteristics. When somebody accuses you of discriminating, you raise your hand like this lady did over there. Said, "I'm guilty as charged. I'm discriminating. I'm differentiating our modes of conduct." I'm wondering where the word gay came from because in my vocabulary, homosexual is the correct term. And I really don't like to give in to that gay term personally, so I don't use it. But this is just, I know, it's just my own personal thing. But I've come into that, I think, through the abortion angle too because I don't, don't like to use the word pro-abortion or, or pro-choice. I won't use it because it's not correct. Again, I get the tough ones. It's, 
feel like the deck is stacked here. Uh, well, I, I don't know specifically the etymology of the word gay, but my suspicion is that historically uh, it was an attempt by the homosexual community to appropriate a term which had probably been used against them. Uh, and Well, and not just to make it look nice, but, but to, to turn it in some sense uh, into a badge of honor rather than, than a, a badge of dishonor. Um, I am, as many of you know, a loyal son of the University of Notre Dame. Uh, and the leprechaun logo from the University of Notre Dame, uh, if, if you look at it, you'll notice he looks sort of like an ape. Uh, and that's because it, this logo is derived from political cartoons uh, directed in, in a very negative way against Irish Americans and Irish Catholics in particular uh, in the late 19th and early 20th centuries. Uh, and the University of Notre Dame decided to appropriate that symbol and turn it into a badge of honor, right, uh, as, 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 as the sort of most recognized sign of the university. Um, I suspect that... that uh, Advocates of, of homosexuality have done the same thing with with terms like gay. Certainly, that's what they've done with terms like queer, right? That was initially a slur term, a derogatory term, uh, and they sort of you know appropriated it for their own purposes, uh, effectively trying to take it away uh, and 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 turn it into a, a tool uh, rather than an insult. So I suspect that that's what what has happened there. I was just talking to my mom last night, who she lives in Minnesota, and she received a letter from a Catholic organization asking her to call her senator about voting for something um, that's in the Minnesota legislature, and it has something to do with um, protecting the tax-exempt Christian organizations um, and protecting their tax-exempt status if the laws are changed um, to say that... Um, organizations should recognize homosexual marriage um, so that tax-exempt Christian organizations would not, like if, if they would be opposed to homosexual marriage, then they would no longer have the tax-exempt status. I don't know if anyone can speak to that. Was it, was it a Minnesota yeah. law? Yeah. Well, yeah. Conscience clause or something? I, that could be. I mean, when you when you talk about tax exempt status, it's a federal law under the IRS 501c3 is what the the church and churches and parishes use or benefit from. And I don't know how Minnesota state law would affect that, but maybe. I mean, <laughs> I spent three years in Minnesota. And it's the land of taxes and lakes, so uh, there is possibly an exemption under state law for various um, uh, religious based um, organizations or ministries and. And, 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 and that's a way of getting in the back door. You know, all these different laws and policies, um, those areas that I was talking about, the level, the activity at the judiciary and the legislature, and it also comes down to local governments, okay? Um, how is your local school board going to uh, run its school, and, and how does gay advocacy reach its way into the local school board level? So I don't know anything specifically about the law, but it, that's not to say that it's not in existence. Yeah, and I, I think that is a concern because of what happened in California. In California, um, the state Supreme Court of California ruled that Catholic Charities, the organization Catholic Charities, cannot not provide contraceptives to their employees. In other words, they have to provide contraceptives to their employees if their employees want to, even though it's Catholic 
charities. Okay, so this is something that definitely is going to be going, working its way through the federal court system because it's a complete violation of, of a private organization's rights, especially uh, religious organization's rights to run its, con conduct itself how it wishes. So I can see why in Minnesota that, that would be a concern because you would think that, a, that even if, all, if, if gay marriage is legalized across the nation that they can't force, say, the, cap the, the Diocese of South Dakota to allow gay marriages within Catholic churches but you never know what can happen based on these sorts of things in California. Any other questions? Okay. A comment on that one. This morning on uh, National Public Radio, they had a uh, Justice of the Peace, and she was Catholic, and she resigned because uh, she was going to have to be uh, ordered to perform gay marriages. And she said, you know, six months prior to that, she, uh, you know, they had promised her that there would be a conscience clause, that uh, anybody who didn't want to perform a gay marriage as a justice of the peace would not have to. And that, that's not true. And so that's what they're doing in Minnesota. They're basically, you know, providing that so, you know, a, a Catholic can still be a justice of the peace. Because that's just happened in Massachusetts. So that, I think that's what that law is, is, is addressing. I've got a question while I'm up here. You, uh, you, I, uh, behind all of this, I see the, the lie of unisex. And I don't know if you can address that theologically, philosophically. Um, androgyny, the, the fact that, that uh, man and woman are not different, but man and woman are the same. And that's what we're, that's what we're getting at. Okay, yeah, I, I definitely think that uh, that's the case, that at the heart of this, the whole... The, the gay marriage push, the whole push to legitimize homosexuality is a misunderstanding of the human person, um, is a false theological and philosophical anthropology, understanding of what it means to be a human person. And I think part of that is, as what Father mentioned, there's a push in our country in all sorts of dimensions, and you, even, you see it um, in, in the, the, uh, the gay movement as well, to erase the differences between men and women. Um, Somebody gave it, well, the, one of the things that, that's being recognized is that modern secular feminism tries to not so much uphold the dignity of the woman as it does to erase the differences between women and men. So what, what, what's one difference between man and woman? Well, a woman is the one who's able to bear a child. Well, contraception and abortion takes care of that. It makes a woman more like a man in that way. But that's something that somebody else in the fall is going to be speaking about, maybe. Uh, but I think that's one dimension. Now, did you want to? I think there's certainly something to that, uh, Father. I think that uh, some of the things that Chris has pointed toward, I would, I would, I would agree with. Uh, I think that there are, of course, um, uh, other species of feminism which, which wouldn't make that move. Certain Catholic feminists, for example, uh, who would want to um, seek uh, legitimate corrections and uh, ways in which women have been have been mistreated without trying to deny the appropriate uh, distinctiveness of, of female uh, nature. Um, I think also that the issue might derive from a deeper problem, not, not merely a matter of, of people in our society acting as though there's no distinction or difference between the sexes, but, but perhaps from what might be a more fundamental drive for self-determination. To me, this is one of the significant battles being fought in our age, philosophically, theologically, legally, politically, 
uh, and in almost every other way. Uh, some of the things that, that these gentlemen have been, have been mentioning tonight, uh, things like the Supreme Court's recent endeavors not merely to interpret the Constitution, right, as a set of laws or principles which are given to them to be reflected on, but rather to determine law, right, to, to create, if you will, law, and in some sense the meaning of the Constitution. That, I think, is an effect of this, this increasing drive towards self-determination. Uh, and we see it in other areas as well. I, I, uh, I think it was a definition of marriage that you cited uh, as a momentous act of self-determination. Is that how you, how you quoted it? That, I think, is, is, is testimony to the sort of spirit that I'm talking about. Um, we behave as though we create our own natures rather than our natures being created with certain possibilities and certain limitations by God. Uh, incidentally, this is not only a problem for people of faith. Uh, that is to say, we're not the only ones who ought to be suspicious of this movement. Um, I'm convinced that philosophically we can prove that God exists and that we are created by God. So when I hear, uh, for example, people criticizing the inclusion of a phrase like one nation under God uh, in the Pledge of Allegiance and, and the folks who want to rail against that crying separation of church and state, I sort of throw up my hands because to me, the existence of God is not merely a matter of faith. It's something that philosophically for thousands of years uh, has been considered a matter of secular truth, if you will. And certainly I think it's enshrined in, in the laws and the early formative documents of our country in a way that doesn't suggest that it violates the separation of church and state. Uh, and yet, partly I think because we as a society are increasingly unwilling to acknowledge that there might be an author of our nature apart from ourselves, we have this kind of fundamental desire to reject the notion of, of a, even a creator God, uh, never mind a redeemer God. So, that's all. Okay, on that same path, how, I'm picturing myself having conversations with people <laughs> about this, and when you talk about that the, the marriage has two aspects, is that the right word? The unitive and the procreative end. That's, that's baseline for us, but how do you even convince someone of that? That that is what marriage is for? I got an easy one. Yeah. <laughs> um, it's not an easy one, right? And that's actually why I, why I not just sort of work that over in my comments tonight. Because quite often, asserting that marriage is procreative will be regarded as begging the question, right? As, as assuming the very matter which is up for dispute. Uh, and sociologically, I suspect that, that the majority of Americans um, wouldn't agree that marriage is necessarily procreative, or at least they certainly wouldn't go to the wall defending it. And that's why I think we have to ask ourselves, well, if marriage is not procreative, then what is marriage exactly? I mean, what is it that distinguishes this particular type of friendship, this particular type of union, from other types of friendship and other types of union? Uh, and I think that you can sort of play the what-if game with folks who want to deny this. You know, um, what if marriage was merely about physical intimacy, physical proximity? Well, then how is my relationship with my wife different from my relationship with my dentist? Right? Uh, as a male, uh, it's even more invasive when I when I get my my rear molars worked on, right? Uh, and, and I don't mean to be crude, but 
but if this is the discussion that we have to have, then this is the discussion that we have to have. Is if it's merely a matter of loving someone a lot, right? Then how do we distinguish it? As I as I wondered in my comments, from from say my relationship with my children or my relationship with my parents, whom I also love very much. Um, if it's merely a matter of sort of entering a lifelong contract, how do we distinguish that from other lifelong contracts? And of course that's problematic because in our society it's no longer regarded as lifelong anyway. So I think you can sort of go through all of the the objections or the pretenders um, that people will put forward as, as being the distinguishing criteria of marriage. And you can pretty much find counterexamples, ways in which treating marriage as distinctive as special in some way, um, ways in which these folks become uh, incoherent or inconsistent, uh, their views contradict themselves. And then you're left with the question, well, what is it that's different about this act? Well, to me, the most obvious thing is, is the sexual aspect. And then you have to get into the discussion about what actually constitutes sex. You know, is it just insertion or is it something more than that? Uh, and, and then I think you've got to have the discussion about, about sex being fundamentally procreative or quite frankly, it's not being sex. Um, so that's how I would proceed with that conversation. It doesn't mean, by the way, that you're going to persuade anyone, but I think the simple fact that you can carry on a rational conversation about it will have a significant impact on many people who are not inclined to agree with your, your viewpoint in the first place. At least they'll come to see it as rational. And just to add on to that, I think that uh, you can also argue to the absurd. So if we allow gay marriage, if, if that's okay, that what's the principle, the principle, not just the ick factor, but the principle by which uh, we don't allow polygamy, as Travis mentioned, that's already being challenged, or polyamory, completely open marriages, where you've got 10 people, mix, it doesn't matter how you want it, men and women, who want to enter a contractual relationship where they'll get all these benefits, but they have no intention of being exclusive and so on. What's the principle by which somebody who supports gay marriage opposes that? Uh, one of the places where, um, I don't know if it was in San Francisco, one of the places where uh, they were just starting to marry uh, gay couples, two Catholic brothers walked up and said, we want to get married. And they said, well, you can't do that. Why not? Well, that's just wrong. Well, and, I mean, they, and they were doing it on purpose. They were, they were, they were pushing, they were challenging the, the whole reasoning there. And they're saying, well, that's just wrong that, that two siblings can get married. Well, that's the argument that was used against gay marriage for years. So it's just wrong, or the ick factor. Um, or, yeah, interracial marriage, same thing. So I think our, you know, using these examples of what to, to, to try to get them to think about what's the principle about what marriage is, is another way you can go. Yeah. I actually had a little section in my paper about the slippery slope, slope arguments. And, and I agree with everything that Chris has said. I think you have to be careful about the slippery slope argument, though, or the, or the argument to, to absurdity, as Chris described it, because slippery slopes are only a problem for people who don't like what's at the bottom of them, right? So, so if you're arguing with someone who is more than willing to say, yes, you're absolutely right, there's no difference whatsoever, so let's just make marriage a contract that brings with it certain legal rights, and anyone can enter it who wants to, right? That is, in some ways, a tenable position. It's not the right position, but I mean, I mean it could be sort of consistent. Um, so you have to be careful that someone, just in the interest of, of, of sort of you know, standing off with you, um, could actually do that. And so you might not persuade them in the end. But for the majority of people, I think those sorts of concerns will be, will, will be binding in some way.
How do you answer the question, um, which I hear a lot, and that is, um, if it doesn't hurt anyone else, why is it, you know, a problem? <laughs> How does it? <laughs> I'll, I'll start. You can you can correct my errors. Um, well, I think there are probably two ways that you could go at that. Um, the first is to say I think we can have a legitimate concern for actions that hurt individuals without hurting others. Um, why do we find suicide morally problematic? Uh, it's because you're doing damage to yourself. And I think as a society, we have some kind of. I'll, I'll start. You, you can yeah. you can correct my errors. Um, well, I think there are probably two ways that you could go at that. Um, the first is to say I think we can have a legitimate concern for actions that hurt individuals without hurting others. Um, why do we find suicide morally problematic? Uh, it's because you're doing damage to yourself. And I think as a society, we have some kind of legitimate concern for, for the well-being of individuals in society. Uh, I think the other way that you could approach that sort of question would be to ask whether it's really the case that it doesn't hurt anyone else. Um, suicide, for instance, seems to be an action which is contained to the person committing the act. Um, the problem is, of course, that there are people who love that person. Uh, uh, and even if there aren't people who love that person, by the way, society is impoverished by the loss of that person. Um, I think I can say this as a philosopher and as a Catholic, that um, any time a human being is lost, creation is somehow diminished. Uh, any human being, even fairly wretched ones. Uh, so in that regard, I think you, know, you, can, you can ask, is it really the case that by allowing people to enter into gay marriages or civil unions, that no one is harmed? Well. Um, I'm, a, I'm a new father. I have a, a, a daughter who is uh, 16 months old and, and twins on the way for this summer. Um, I suspect that if my children grow up in a society where this is presented as legally acceptable, you guys knew I'd get the babies in, right? Um, uh, I can't t talk for any length of time without talking about my girls. Um, I suspect that, that if my daughters grow up in a society where this is presented as legally acceptable, it will have an impact on their perception of, of, of what it is to be gay or to engage, in, in, to engage in homosexual intercourse, for example. By the simple fact that it's, that it's there and that it's considered acceptable by society, that doesn't mean that we as parents can't do anything to, to teach our children uh, that we think it's wrong and, and in various ways, but it is going to have an impact on them, right? Their, their upbringing will be different from my own because society will have been changed in that way. And, and we are, after all, social, uh, social creatures. When we say that the family is the fundamental unit of society, um, that's not an, a statement about human beings that doesn't touch on the very nature of who we are, right? We come into existence through the agency of other human beings, right? Whether or not our family stays together beyond the moment of conception, we couldn't be conceived except in a social context of, of a mother and a father. Uh, and if all goes well, we need to be raised in a social context as well. And even if our parents disown us from the very beginning, we wouldn't exist but for God's creative love, which means we're always in relation with others, and those relations impact who we are. Uh, so much so that, that I really don't think that we could make a kind of grand social change like legalizing gay marriage um, without it having an impact on other people. We'll make this the last question, and then we'll be available to ask uh, questions just individually if you want to come up. But just for purposes of public, we'll make this the last one. Why is it when 
Catholics come out as gays or in favor of abortion or anything that's against the church teaching, why do they insist on calling themselves Catholics when in reality they're not because they're not living the doctrine? Why don't they just say they're Episcopalian or something? I mean, why do they fight so hard to, t to stay in something that has rules that don't accept what they're doing? Okay. Um, I'll, I'll give my answer first, then Travis will comment. I think it's because they recognize the truth and beauty and goodness of what their faith is, even though they reject certain aspects of, uh, of its teachings and beliefs. They recognize that it's good, whether it's just good because this is what I was raised in and I have some cultural attachment, or maybe even something, some subconscious recognition of the truth of Catholicism. They recognize that it's good and, you know, it's sort of, this is the church I was raised in and I have some attachment to it and I don't want to leave it even though I don't accept teachings X, Y, and Z, and A, B, C, D, F, G, H, I, J, K, of what it presents. They just have the attachment. Okay, all right. Okay, thanks uh, for coming and for your attention. Again, we're here to answer any more questions you might have. And the next Theology and Tap again will be on the 27th of August with Bishop Carlson. You're free to stay around and uh, chat some more. There's more food available. And Father Jim and Father Don will be available to hear confessions if anyone's interested. Thank you very much. Good job.